It's time to march into spring. It's time to move our clocks forward. Well, at least for most of us. And to move our business forward for us all. And it's time for NSA's Video Lab, April 12 through 14 in Hotlanta, Georgia. So you might want to consider signing up for that now. Meanwhile, my guests on VOE for March are amazing. So let's get started. The man with the golden voice. Gosh, I wish that was me, but I bet many of you in NSA know exactly who I'm talking about. You see, when it comes to creating distinction and becoming iconic, Scott McCain really shines. Scott shares not only what it takes to become successful, but also the simplicity of getting booked internationally. And now, NSA VOE in March welcomes Scott McCain. Scott, Hello. it is great to have you Thanks, on Voices Scott. of Experience. Privileged to be here. I am so thrilled to have you here. <laughs> oh, and you. every time I'm around you, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so mesmerized by the voice. Oh man, well, I, I, it's the only voice I've ever had. Well, <laughs> hey, God bless you with the lucky one. <laughs> I gotta tell you a quick story. So uh, my hometown was very kind and there was a dinner I was attending and the doctor who delivered me who had delivered like everyone in the room. Okay, you know, right. I'm, yeah, I'm a very small town, and it was like the one doctor in Crowleysville, Indiana. And he said, you know, I've done so many, you know, hundreds of births. And he said, I'll never forget when, when, you know, Scott was delivered, and I slapped him on the butt, and he said, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a privilege to be with you tonight. You know, so. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really a good line. Not, not a bad line. That's so. a good line. Scott, you have a tremendous career. Thank you. And you have the privilege, you've earned the privilege, of talking with a number of companies yeah. about creating distinction. So I want to stay with that line and ask you the question, here you are at Influence, or you could be at the Winter Conference, but you're at an NSA meeting and somebody comes up and it's like, oh my gosh, that's Scott McCain. And they walk up to you and they want advice from you yeah. about how to... Uh, improve mm -hmm. uh, or put their speaking career on the right trajectory. What do you tell speakers about creating distinction? First thing is get a better speech. Okay, and, and, and I think that's true for all of us. I mean, it's 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 true for me. I've got to keep making the speech better. I have to keep working on the craft. If there's if there's anything I hate when I go to a concert is you see the band that plays their hits, but they're mailing it in. You know, and and we went to see Elton John not long ago in Vegas, and, and it was mesmerizing. It, he was just incredible. You, you felt like, you know, there's what, 5,000 people in the audience, and you felt like he was playing a little coffee club, you know, a little, sure. little cocktail right. lounge. Uh, that's what I aspire to, to be. And, and it, it, it bothers me when I hear some folks say, uh, if you're not getting booked enough, it's, it's not your speech. No, if you're not getting booked enough, it is your speech because every speech should generate additional business. Now, does that happen 100% of the time? No. Uh, there are some groups you speak to that there's nobody in the room that's gonna book another speaker. Sure. But then there's others where there's multiple. So I've always thought, and uh, my goal for every speech is repeat and referral. The speech is so good that group wants me back and there's somebody in that group that will influence somebody else. So the first thing I would say to any speaker, whether it's a fellow CPAE or, or, or somebody here at their first conference, work on the speech first. The, the, the problem is it's easy for us to think 
oh, if I only had more Twitter followers, or if, if only I could get more listens to my podcast. Not that those aren't important, they are. That's not what comes first. The, the, you know, it, it, it's like, if it, I'm a big fan of the Indianapolis Colts. I want Andrew Luck to be working on being a better quarterback, not worried about how many Twitter followers he has or, or worried about how many endorsement deals he's able to get. Because if you're a great quarterback, those things will follow. If your speech is so remarkable that people want it again and they want to tell other people about you, everything else falls into place. So when you're talking to organizations all across the world yeah. about creating distinction, what are you doing to help um, change the speech or modify the speech or the examples? How, sure. how does that part of it work for you so that it becomes relevant to the audience you're speaking to? Well, in the book Create Distinction, I say there are four cornerstones to distinction. And the first one is clarity, for example. Most of us aren't clear enough about what our advantages are in the marketplace. So with every group, I'll talk about why would somebody choose you instead of the competition. When we're booked for a speech, it, it, it's not that I get booked. It's that they look at five or 10 or 20 or 50 other speakers, and through the narrowing down process, they find a competitive advantage for me. When I, when I don't get the speech, they go, well, you know, Mark Sanborn or Joe Calloway or, you know, whoever, you know, the, there's a competitive advantage that they have that that group finds more appealing than mine, right? Sure. So, so many times we find that organizations, whether it's a solopreneur or whether it's a, a, a Apple, they haven't really been clear enough about uh, what their advantages are compared to the competition or the advantage that they think is important is not an advantage from the client's perspective, right? So, right. so we, uh, that's part of where I narrow it down with that particular group. For example, I'm doing a big conference of, of the, the most elite financial advisors uh, in America coming up in a week. Okay, so what are we gonna talk to them about? Uh, how does your clarity change as your marketplace changes? As people, more people are retiring and there's a transfer of wealth from parents to, to kids. I mean, are, have you been clear with the kids that you're the financial advisor of choice, or are they going to get a sorority sister, a fraternity buddy, you know, to, to, to manage their money, and all of a sudden you're out, you know, right. with the transfer of wealth. So, sure. so it, you, you, the principles don't change, but then you look at their perspective, and 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 you look at their unique and individual problems, and then you craft your material uh, based upon their situation, and and that's that's how you get repeat and referral business too is that folks say, man, you know, he didn't give a canned speech, he talked to us. Well, we're like the magicians talking about our trick, you know, how you do the trick, but you and I both know, I don't mean, canned is not right, but it, it, it's prepared, right? right? It's, the, you have principles. Yes. The yes. application may change, right. the principle stays the principles same. Principles don't change, right? And, right. And, and the other thing is that also keeps you from one of the things that I think is challenging in this industry, and that is the, the, the number of folks that chase the hot topic, right? They, they want to chase, uh, it's like they'll call speakers bureaus and say, you know, what are you booking a lot of today? Okay, great. I'll, I, well, it, if you're not known for something, then it's very difficult to promote that or to, or to be recognized. Um, we, we've talked about this personally. When, when Sherry, my first wife, passed away from cancer, um, I had to pull up my britches and get back out there and, and, and get 
get busy. And I started calling speakers bureaus and I asked this question. I said, when you recommend me to your clients, what do you say? And universally the answer was, a good speaker and a nice guy. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I really aspire to be a good speaker and I and choose a nice to be guy. a nice guy. I want right. to be a nice guy. But I can't picture the VP of sales of Ford saying, at this year's meeting, how about if we get a really nice guy to come talk? I mean, nobody's booking that. They right. want someone who can teach our people how to. And so I started studying, how, how do you stand out? And as I looked, I found it was hard to discover, this is several years ago, it was hard to discover resources. And I thought, the blinding flash of the obvious, if, if I need it and can't find it, what's the chance that there are other people out there and other organizations out there that needed the same information? And that's how I got known for speaking about distinction, was I was just trying to create it in my speaking business. And I started researching and, and, and studying it. And so the principles don't change. But, but as you so aptly put it, the, how you apply it, or from the platform, how you recommend that particular group applies it, um, makes all the difference in the world. I got a couple of different directions sure. I want to go with you. Got a quick question related to your involvement with social media. Yeah. Because you are there, yeah. and clearly you have uh, adopted the use of Facebook Live. Yeah. So. Considering that the majority of your bookings are coming from uh, bureaus or uh, large corporate organizations, most of the time sure. from their internal meeting planners, what does the Facebook Live and that experience give you that advances your career? Uh, two things. One is, you know, I, I grew up in a small town with mom and dad running a small store. And there are so many times I think about there was no way at that time for dad to access the quality and the level of information that folks like you and I go provide to corporate and association audiences. It just wasn't accessible. And so part of why I use Facebook Live is to let solopreneurs have access to that type of information. Now there's other ways that they can do it. There's, there's a program that Larry Wingett and, and Randy Pennington and I do uh, that, that people pay to come attend. Uh, I do speech coaching to, now. Uh, again, always thinking about what, what the next thing is going to, going to be and how do you, you know, marshal your time and your resources. Um, the Facebook Live isn't to book corporate gigs. Right. It, it is to hopefully give something to the solopreneur that gets them thinking in a way that you and I inspire or hopefully influence other people to think. And, and the other thing is, for me, it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's a way to get with individuals because I think a lot of times we can fall in that trap of speaking to the audience, you know, or speaking to the group, and we don't get the Q and A and and the immediacy that something like Facebook Live provides. You know, Scott, I have to. I had no idea what the answer to that question was no. going to be, and I have to tell you, I, I'm touched because what oh. you just said is. I'm not being paid to do this. It's just I want to give because there are going to be people that need the message that don't have the opportunity to get it in another format. That actually is the spirit of NSA. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I, I was certainly influenced. Uh, I, yeah, I, every, everything in my career I owe to NSA. I mean, I, I had a great mentor. I, I, I learned so much here um, in, in personal challenges and tragedies and mess-ups and everything else. This, this has been... 
a family I could count on. And, um, you know, I, I, if you don't have that spirit, what, what are you doing in this business? Right. You know, I, it just, um, I, I appreciate you saying that. Now, at one point, if I remember this correctly, and if I am completely butchering it, <laughs> just go ahead and say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. all right, everybody on VOB, Chuck <laughs> butchered that one. But it seems like I asked you at one point in time, sometime back, how did you get these international gigs? And you responded about posting a video on Facebook. YouTube. When, yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Oh, yeah, YouTube. I'm yeah. sorry. So for those people that would say, oh my gosh, I really would like to expand internationally, but I'm not sure what the process is, what tips would you give us? Well, I think in part it goes back to having a really great video, having a really great story. It gets back to having a better speech. Um, I, I was doing a program, it was for uh, Express, you know, the, the ladies' uh, retail stores that you sure. see in malls. It was all the managers of all their stores from all over the country. And uh, I, I had just had a situation with this taxi driver in Jacksonville, Florida, Terry Souls, who calls himself Taxi Terry. Right. And I told that story, and Express loved it, and they videoed it, and they put it on YouTube. And, well, cool, right? So. I put it on YouTube and people responded to that story. Sure. And so everything from, I, we got a call in our office and, and the, the, this guy with an accent says, uh, I've been sitting watching uh, YouTube videos. And, and right away, Shelly that runs the office is like, oh boy, this, you know, what, what and uh, I'd like to have Scott come and speak. And uh, well, great. You know, and, and there's, this had just started, right? It's, right. And uh, she said, well, that's very nice. And she just knows this is not going to be anything. And she said, uh, uh, may I ask who you're with, your name? Can I get some information? And he said, yes, my name is Klaus Kibsgaard. I am the president of BMW Europe. <laughs> well. And we got a meeting in Stockholm. Now, he, what, what really, and so I've done many, many programs for, for Klaus and for BMW. And, and what happened was, it, it, what changed my thinking was I've been in this business long enough that we used to send out video, right? Whether it was the VHS and or then the it became the DVD, DVD right? right? And then right, and so because there was a cost involved with sending that, right? We tended to limit our thinking, and, and which in turn limited the geographical scope of of our marketing efforts. Now with YouTube, you're you're. Teams outside cheering for you. Yeah, I just right. wanted to let you know. Yeah. BOE people, yeah. hear the cheer. They know Scott McCain is in the house. Well, it, the, the, the cool thing about YouTube is it's as easy for a meeting professional to watch you in Bangalore as in Baltimore. And to, that is where the, the vast majority of international businesses come from me. My biggest client right now is uh, the Volkswagen Group Australia, which is Volkswagen, Porsche, Audi, sure. Bentley. Um, and that happened because a top executive there, a C-suite executive there, uh, was listening to an audiobook. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, I think part of what happens is if you have a distinctive message, if you have a signature story that can generate uh, views, that will do the marketing for you. Now, the, the, the next question we always ask is, who is our customer's customer? Who's our client's client, right? So if if the XYZ company books me, it, then then 
I want them to book me more, right? But then I want to think, okay, so if, I, if my message is right for them, I'll, I'll give you an example. I did this huge meeting for Bridgestone Tires, right? Okay. And, and so who does Bridgestone have as their customer? Well, my first thought is it's folks like you and me that buy tires and put them on a chart. No, we go to the tire store to buy those. Right. So Bridgestone's customer are the tire stores. So we went to Bridgestone and said, hey, your people love the message. Wouldn't tire stores love the message? And you're, you're being asked to sponsor the cocktail or reception or lunch. Nobody remembers who sponsored lunch, but they might remember that Bridgestone sponsored their speaker. And so they booked 24 dates. I did 24 sales groups of 24 different, you know, discount tire and, you know, Tire America and you know, right. all those. And, and so that one speech then turned into 24 speeches just by asking who's your customer's customer. So, uh, and then that branched out in international business because they went, well, if it works in the States, why wouldn't it work elsewhere? Right? So that, that you, and, and, and so, by constantly asking that question and then having a distinctive message and, and information that you can easily promote and share, it, it, it's just part of the process. Scott, this has been great. Thanks, Jed. Since my initial involvement in NSA, I have always been able to reach out to you, talk with you, you're accessible, you are a prince of a human being, a really nice guy, and a hell of a speaker. No, no, no. Well, Chuck, you, you've been so helpful to me in so many ways that, uh, that we've talked about personally, and I, I just want to say thank you because you embody the spirit of Cabot. Look at you doing this. I mean, this, I, I, I was BOE chair back uh, a long time ago, and I know this is, this is a time sink. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but then again, look work. at this. It's a lot of work. So thank you for what you're doing for NSA, and thank you for uh, making, making and, and again, look at what you're doing. You, you are taking us a new direction. You're taking it in, in a way that is compelling and exciting, and revitalizes something that's been around forever. So it's not that we have to come up with new things. It's, it's an example for all of us in speaking. It's not that you have to reinvent the wheel. It's how can we take something that exists and make it fresh, make it exciting, and do new things again. And that's what you're doing. Well, I appreciate it. Scott, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, buddy. Pleasure. Same here. She exploded my mind when it comes to publishing. Diana Boer is the author of 48 books available in 60 foreign language editions with nearly 4 million copies sold. She is pleased to be published by some of the top publishing houses in the world, Penguin, Random House, Simon & Schuster, Pocket Books, HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson, and McGraw-Hill. And her blogs can be read on Forbes, HuffPost, and the CEO Magazine, and she's my guest on VOE. So my guest on VOE is Diana Boer. And Diana, um, my real first experience with you, well, actually, it's two-part. Just to say, part of it was because my initial foray into speaking was with NSA North Texas. So I was familiar with you there, although I was only in the chapter for a year or two before moving to the Carolinas. But I got reintroduced to you, and 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 I'm just I have to say I'm amazed. Okay, for someone to have now her 48th book under contract, right. you uh, you headed up the NSA Writers Conference in New York several years ago, and I remember going to that, and it was amazing the information. 
and the diversity of how people uh, chose to write and publish uh, books. But you, I don't think there is anybody in NSA that won't say, you set the standard. <laughs> we had a lot of great editors there. We had a lot of big agents there. It was a fun time. It absolutely was. So let's talk just a little bit about, not that particular conference, but about the concept, because today there seems to be a, a, a big chasm between the concept of, well, I want to write a book, and, and, and I have the, we'll call it capacity, Mm-hmm. Some people aren't as talented as others, <laughs> uh, but but I have the capacity to write the book. I do it. I get it professionally edited, great cover, and I can either go self-published, which seems to be incredibly easy today. It is. Anybody can get published today if you're going to self-publish. That's just, you, you have the tools, you have the software, you can get published. Right. There's no screening whatsoever. So, or it. Yeah, I, like you, because all of your books have been published through major publishers. Right. So I, I might attempt to go through the major publisher, but if if in fact I was interested in doing that, it seems like there are lots of hurdles and obstacles. So so tell someone who has perhaps self-published several books, if I want to go with the major publisher, what are the steps I need to look for? Basically, what you're doing is you're going to find a an agent because. You can't get anything published without an agent unless they're your best friend or they know someone. Sure. And even then, they're going to want a proposal because they don't make the decision alone. They have to convince their marketing team that it's going to make a lot of money for them. Sure. And so you're going to have to eventually write a proposal. And so you have to go through, unless they are your best friend, you're going to have to go through an agent. So you write a query letter to the agent. And the agent then says, I love it. Sounds like a great idea. It sounds like you have a great platform as a speaker, which we all do. You get to the audience. You engage with your audience. So they're going to say, I love the idea. You have a great platform. So send me your proposal. And you want to have the proposal ready to go. Because if you don't, they're going to forget you in a month or two months. So you want to have the proposal ready to go. So as soon as they respond to your email that you've just sent, that query letter is just basically a business letter. It's a, a page sure. long or so telling them about your idea and your platform. You send out the proposal, and then they shop it. They know the top editors, what they're looking for, when they're looking for it, and they have access. We all know about access. Access, absolutely. Access to that C-suite, access to the CEO and your corporate client. It's the same thing. They have the access. They have the ear. They can get response in 24 hours or 48 hours. Oh, wow. So you get it to that agent. They will pick out the top houses that are going to publish your thing, and they know they're looking for your idea, and they will send it. And then within two or three, four weeks, they will have a contract back to you. And here are your offers. They'll have two offers, three offers, four offers. If it's a great idea and you have a great great platform, they have an auction. And they'll have two or three publishers bidding for your idea. And that's that's basically the process. Then now, you write then you write the book. If it's nonfiction, which I'm assuming most speakers will be doing, nonfiction, then you write the book. What you don't want to do is write the book and then go try to sell it. Really? Okay. Now so, there are there's so many, Chuck, there are so many false ideas out there about, oh, it's going to take you 18 months if you go to a major publisher. It's going to take you 18 months out there, and you just can't get an agent, and you it's terribly hard to find an agent, and it's just impossible to get published. All that is rubbish. It's somebody who's wanting to sell you something, to sell you on an idea or sell you on some kind of, to be your middleman or some kind of service. It, it's just 
not true. Every time I hear all those rumors going through NSA about how difficult it is to find an agent, how horribly hard, difficult it is to get a major publisher, I just, I cringe at all the false information out there. Okay, so you've just wobbled my world. Okay, let me just say, Diana, you wobbled my world because here's what wobbled me. I understood the agent part. I understood the proposal part. I got all of that. But I'm sitting back thinking, and then you write the book. Right, right. And the reason you do that is because many times a publisher might want to uh, say, look, you, you've proposed a 50,000-word book. I'd rather have it shorter. We're, we're finding some of our writers only want a 35,000-word book. Or they might say, you know, you're doing that for the C-suite. How about doing it for the vice presidential level and the C-level and the C-suite? Or they're saying, you know, you're, you're talking about, you're aiming that idea at the sales, the, uh, the sales team. Why don't you do that so that the idea is focused at the sales team and the management of the sales team. And they may, and it wouldn't take much to change what you want to say, but you might throw in different examples, a few different examples. So it's a collaboration. And then I hear a lot of times speakers will say, but I want total control of the market. To me, that is so foolish when you have, when you have the expertise. It's like saying to somebody like Google, I know more about SEO than you do, Google, or I know more about phones than you do, Apple. Sure. So I want to have all total control of marketing my phone as opposed to going to Apple and having free advice from the people who branded the Apple phone. You know, it's just you have all this free marketing advice and free design advice and whatever that's, you know, to your advantage. You could always say no even though the contract says that the publisher has final say or approval on the cover design or the title design, they want your input. They, they, I have never in 47 books had a publisher say, nah, we don't want to hear from you. No, we're not going to take your advice. They always strongly rely on your advice for a title or cover or design because they know you've been out there in front of the audiences. They know what you've been marketing. They know, you know, what you use on your speeches, what you have trademarked, and they want to go with that. So they need your input just put as much as you need their marketing advice for what sells and what doesn't. And it's, it's just, it's a beautiful collaboration. One of the things, as I recall, in the uh, writer's workshop, because <laughs> there were agents there and, and, and people from the publishing industry, mm -hmm. But one of the things I recall, and if I'm missing this, you tell me. It's not going to offend me. But was, well, we need to know what kind of, of platform you have, what kind of tribe you have. Mm -hmm. And it was almost as if, if you weren't in the tens of thousands or maybe well over 100,000 um, followers on Twitter or lots of people connected on LinkedIn, which can be up to 30,000, or, or whatever that, that platform happens to be, that if you don't have a, a huge following, they're kind of like, okay, great, you speak, but how many books can you sell? That's, that's not true. Okay. That, again, that's one of those false things okay, great. out there. Great. Uh, Writer's Digest came out with a, with a, a guideline, you know, when they say you need to have a good following or a big following, and that's all relevant according to the publisher 
that you want to publish with. And okay. Their guidelines are, but Writer's Digest last year actually said if you have X number of in this range with Twitter followers, if you have this range on Facebook, if you have this range of number of followers on LinkedIn, that's what we consider good, average, spectacular. Obviously, you're going to get a contract in this range. And that that's a good guideline. So go back and look that up. In the last year, they, they published that. Uh, different agents have different ranges. Uh, somebody who is publishing in the, let's say, a business book, nonfiction on finance would have a different range to what they considered spectacular and average and good, as opposed to somebody who wanted to publish a general diet book. They would expect a much larger following because it's going to be a bigger category. So they're, they're different ranges. And, and let me add this one thing, Chuck. A lot of people who have a, uh, let me say, a, a lot of false information are basing that on their interaction with one publisher. And that one publisher is a major publisher, but I would say it's probably the worst major publisher. And they, um, I, I, I'm hesitant to call that name. Oh, I won't call that name. Oh. It is a major publisher uh, in name only. They have sort of a side business of preying on speakers. Huh. <laughs> and um, it, is a, it is a major publisher. But do not, I would just, if I could say to speakers, do not judge major publishers by this one publisher. Okay. And the information you get from that one publisher, it's just uh, basically they make you pay for your own books. Okay. And, and that's not the way. The, the real West of the Simon & Schuster, Harper Collins, Penguin Random House, McGraw-Hill, none of those other publishers work like that. Okay. They don't demand that you buy your other books. Okay. What do you consider an average sales volume? Or uh, let me rephrase it. What do you consider a good sales volume? I can give you statistics. Okay, great. You know, there's several uh, uh, book scan co uh, collects, Nielsen collects records, uh, Publishers Weekly, and those scans are, um, those, that research from those uh, firms are about 60% now. It's dropped a little bit. It's about 60% of the books that are sold. And they say that uh, 10,200 is average. That, that's a real break-even. We're happy. We'll publish your next book. So Interesting. If you've, done, if you've done that. Now, most speakers don't think that's great because we sell so many back of the room. Right. I mean, we get bulk sales. One client can come in and buy 4,000 copies from sure. us. Sure. So we don't consider that great. But just for the general rest of the world authors, they're happy with that. So you can see that you could do really well with a traditional publisher. The, one of the things that I think really it, it just fascinates me is you have... What, uh, go ahead. Go, go ahead and ask that question, but I just want to throw in while you're asking me how many <laughs> to sell. No, go ahead. Uh, you have the both, best of both worlds with a traditional publisher because you get such great discounts as an author. You can go in and negotiate 65, 60, 65, 70 percent discount. So you're basically only paying one to two dollars more than if you self-publish. In other words, if you take your book and you go self-publish it, just add on a dollar or two, and you can buy the same book, get all this free, not not having to pay a self-publisher, and right. publish it with a major publisher, and then get a 70 percent discount. And have them do all the work, get all their expertise, have them market it, get it in the bookstore, and then buy back 
for one or two dollars more per book than if you were self-publishing and get all of that legitimacy and all that prestige and get it reviewed in all the major magazines and you're losing one dollar profit right. if you sell it in the back of the book. So you have the best of both worlds. So, so while we're on that, before mm -hmm. I go to the other question, mm -hmm. while we're on that, so if, if you do that, if you're selling mm -hmm. in the back of the room, do they count those sales? No. If you bought it yourself, right. then you're making 70% profit if right. you go sell it. So no, you don't get royalties on anything you bought back. Well, I'm not thinking so much about the royalty, mm -hmm. but for example, you know, 10,200 is the number that if you were, if you sold that, they probably would give you another contract on a book. Well, so if they sold, I'm going to make it simple for me, 5,000 books from the bookstores, et cetera, et cetera, and you sold 5,000 or 6,000 in the back of the room, there were still... 11,000 books sold. Do they count the back of the room toward the volume? No. no. Okay. No. No. So they're really looking at out in the open world at retail price or whatever retail right. price right. is supposed to be, right. how many now, have been sold? Having said that, remember, they're going to be disappointed, though, if they paid you a $250,000 advance expecting it to sell 100,000 copies, and you only sold that much. Well, of course. It's, it's what it, the expectation. But I'm, I'm speaking from the speaker's world when we're publishing. Most of us are publishing business books. Right. Oh, wait, wait. You wanted more? Huh. Well, this interview was so rich with content that you just got part one of my conversation with Diana. So stay tuned in April as we continue the conversation. And now it's time for Money Matters, here with Joel Block on Voices of Experience. Who are your prospects? Do you know? If you don't know, you're, you're probably going to struggle in business or maybe you're already uh, done with the business on the way out. You have to know exactly who your prospects are. And if you don't know exactly who your prospects are, you're going to struggle for sure. So here's a little trick. When somebody says, uh, who are your prospects? It can't be anybody with ears that likes to listen to speakers. That doesn't work because everybody is nobody in the marketing world. So here's what you have to do, is you have to basically explain what you do with such great specificity that it's almost comical. And I would say it like this, you go to a cocktail party, you go to a reception, you go to a meeting, and somebody says, who are your clients? I would tell them they're left-handed plumbers. Left-handed plumbers, I said, yeah, do you know any? Uh, no, I don't know any left-handed plumbers. I think I might know a right-handed guy, but, but, but I can't think of any left-handed ones. But here's what happened, is now you've got them focused on something very narrow, and they can move up and generalize a little bit from the very, very specific situation that you've created. And the guy might say, well, gee, I don't know any plumbers at all, but I know a fencing contractor, or I know a something else or a something else. And it's up to you to say, well, gee, I can work with those because their situation isn't all that different. The needs that they have aren't all that different. So... In the future, when you're identifying your perfect prospects, make sure that they're very specific, almost to the point of humor, because it works and it opens up the door to great things. And that is how you draw a line to the money. My next guest takes the complex and makes it understandable, and that's no easy feat when it comes to the human brain. But Scott Halford, CSP and distinguished member of the Speaker Hall of Fame, does just that. Scott clarifies rational thought versus threat, and how, well, we as speakers help our audiences dissipate threats and move back to productive rational thought, which is terrific insight. Also, 
Scott talks about creating a speaking business, not a speaking practice. Powerful information you'll want to hear. And now, here's Scott. Have you ever thought about activating your brain? I have to admit, I think about that, <laughs> that a lot, especially when I forget things. My guest is Scott Halford, uh, CSP, Speaker Hall of Fame, CPAE. Uh, that's your new book. And, okay, I have to say this to start this process with VOE. I'm a bit enamored with what you do because I've seen you speak and you can take something that's really kind of complex and break it down so a southern boy like me can understand it <laughs> and then have that wow moment. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you know, I have to understand it myself and that's, <laughs> I break it down so that I can actually understand it. I think the, the important thing about the brain is that Everybody wants to make it all complex, and it is. I mean, the, the intricacies of the human brain are crazy. But there are so many useful little things that we now understand that if we can break it down and break it out of its complexity, people can use it and actually live better and not worry about forgetting things as much. As much. Right. So, okay, take me back just a little bit. Number one, how long have you been involved with NSA? Since 1990. Since 1990. Yeah, a long time. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. So. What first got you into the speaking business? Well, I, was, I had a television career, and I was a producer. And the ideology then from that is I worked for a unit called NBC Business Video. And we sold basically the news bureaus around the world to multinational companies to use for their, their like corporate videos. And there were high-end videos, like $100,000 in the late 90s, which, or late 80s, which was a lot of money back then. Sure. And so their executives would get on the camera, and they would need coaching. And so I coached them. And I worked with them for then media blitzes. And then I started coaching them. They'd take me around and have me coach them in speaking. And it, when I was in college, I had a, a scholarship for speaking, for forensics. But nobody called it a career back then. So it all kind of came together, and um, in 1990, I was working with an executive in Italy. It was really very interesting, because this Italian guy goes, he goes, so you get a paycheck from NBC? I'm like, yeah. He says, so you're on, on, on their payroll? I'm like, yeah, why are you asking? He said, do you know how much we pay people like you from the outside? I said, I have no idea. And he told me, and literally three weeks later, I quit my job, so foolhardy. And I started the business. That's how. It, that's exactly how it started. It was out of total impulsive compulsivity. Just crazy stuff. Okay, so you're. I hope you. I hope you will forgive my ignorance. But I have to forgive my own. So yeah, we'll, I don't know about yeah. that. But from what you just described to being what I really am going to call a brain scientist, what was that evolution? Well, that's nice to call me a brain scientist. That would be way overstating. I, I, I understand the brain. I work the brain. My background's in, in behavioral neuroscience. But uh, I, when I started speaking, I was doing a lot of presentation skills, right? And people were coming at it like most people do. But I was really interested in the fear aspect of it and what happened with the fear response when people got up to speak. So I started studying that. That delved, got, got me to delve into... Um, emotional intelligence. Before it was EI from, from Goldman, I was actually looking at some of the seminal research. Uh, before that came, I was looking at it going, God, this is real stuff. And then when that was published in, in 95, I jumped on that bandwagon and it was like, this makes so much sense to me. 
So um, started working with a lot of research scientists and, and physicians, and they were always interested in the, the science part of emotional intelligence, which is just the dance of the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. The dance between those two is EI, for the most part. And so they, they just loved it, and they, I, I just started noticing that the most cynical of people love the science. You know, if you have the science, people buy the soft stuff. And so I just took upon myself to become more educated, go back to school, study it, and that, that's, you know, everything's kind of organic in my life. I, I wish I could say, I wish I was one of those people, and quite frankly, they make me angry, who knew when they were 14 <laughs> years old, right, when they go like, I'm going to be a doctor when they're 14, and they grow up and be a doctor. I never had that, you know, I never, never, I've always accidentally fallen into my life, and I, I know it doesn't sound very elegant, but that's exactly what I have done, and my life's been very organic, but I've always followed the, the path of my life that feels right. So it's organic, but it's right. And it probably would have happened had I, you know, really thought about it and planned it anyway. Interesting. I'm fascinated, however, with this whole concept of, well, you know, our rational brain is what? Prefrontal cortex, I yep, guess. Yep. But, but what happens in the brain whenever we have uh, an experience that takes place. Maybe we have a financial disaster and all of a sudden there's intense pressure or, or there's a relationship that dies or we have a, a health problem, but something that, that triggers us to quit rationally thinking. What's actually taking place? Yeah, it's just a threat response. And the, the threat response in the brain is, is a survival mechanism. You're having a, a, a pump of neurochemistry that actually narrows your behavior, causes you to only think and do the things that this magnificent organism thinks that you need to focus on in order to survive the moment. Uh, because the intensity sometimes is way off the chart, uh, it's, it's not infallible. So your emotional brain has no rules, right? It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's, it's immediate and it, it's, how I liken it is it's like a, if you've ever gone into, there's a mall near my house, the Cherry Creek Mall, where they have this kid playground inside the mall. And sometimes it's just funny to watch these little three and four year olds in there and they scream and kick and, and scratch and bite. And if they didn't have parents, they, we would grow up being a, a, a species that bit each other, right? <laughs> but they have these parents who help them, they say no, 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 no. And that's what the rational part of the brain does to our emotions. And when we're in a, a, a threat response, that fight or flight, but really intense uh, threat response, through financial loss or a divorce or a relationship loss or we lose a job, what ends up happening is that brain overrides that prefrontal cortex and we say and do things that are more like they would be on the playground without parents telling it, don't do that, don't do that. And so when we take time and we let the chemistry dissipate, we can get back into that emotional, that intelligent part of the brain, giving intelligence to our emotions. So that's kind of the simplistic way to look at it, but the threat response is very real in humans. It's constant. It's every day. We have them all the time. Some people are really threat, um, threat happy, if you will. Our audiences are in threat spaces all over the place. They are threatened by, do I have my job, the morale, do people like me, am I doing a good job? Uh, they're just constant being pelted by emails and by all kinds of, of uh, just responsibilities from home and work. It's threat, 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 threat. And so people are running around numb. And so when speakers come in and give them solutions, they dissipate the threat. And that's why I think our job is to give them something where they go, 
here's something I can use. I mean, that's best speakers do that. Let's let's move to the concept of your business. Okay. The, the business model that you have. Um, as a Hall of Fame speaker, a person with an absolutely great book, and and your video rocks. Uh, it's, it's, it's really neat to see. Uh, it looks like you really, and I've seen it live because you were you spoke at High Point University. Mm -hmm. It was an awesome presentation. Thank oh you. my goodness! Um, talk to us a little bit about what your speaking business model is since you've been doing this for a number of years, and it clearly the marketplace has changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as a lot of people may or may not know, I have a business partner, and um, she is a partner in the business. She's not an employee. She is a partner a full-on partner of the business. And she helps on the business development side, so I don't talk money with clients, I don't talk contracts, I don't talk licensing. She'll take a, uh, a keynote or a single program request from a client and actually build a relationship and dive deeply with them and it turns into a number of programs and other things. So she builds that out. We also um, have a, a, a group of associates, about 150, associates worldwide inside of corporations who are certified in a process um, around an instrument that we do. So that's a chunk of the business. And then the, in my book, Activate Your Brain, there's a model around an ego. It's an ego model. And clients love it. I, 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 I really love it too, but I was just always so taken back by clients going, that, I want to do that. And they started doing that. Some of my bigger clients would say, can we just use that? How much would you charge for us to use it? And we just do a per piece every time they use it kind of thing. We sell them like, you know, 50 times in a year because right. they're going to use it kind of deal. So we license it's pretty simple. So we have a chunk of business that way. And then, of course, just all the, the, the speaking and, and training. So there's these, these pods. Uh, and we're, we have a, a part of our business that is sellable. The parts that, that's not sellable is me, right? Right. I mean, I can sell it for today, but when I'm, go I'm gone, it, yeah, no, no business owner would ever buy me. But they will buy the, the book of business that we have on the other part that continues to sell. And that was our goal, is to create a model that created a speaking business and not a speaking practice. The language that you just used is really interesting. A speaking business versus a speaking practice. Mm -hmm. Because for most professionals, I started my career as a CPA, you had a practice. If you were a medical doctor, you had a practice. If you were a lawyer, you had a practice. If you were an accountant, you had a practice. Right. And, and it was as good as long as you were alive or functioning. But the business is an entirely different experience. Yeah, yeah. It is, and, and you know, the, it's a choice. And, and you know, there are people who are completely happy with the practice piece, and I think I probably would have. Well, my business partner, I've been together uh, for 18 years since 2000 and, and it works really well. We have all the legal pieces in place and we did all the right stuff up front. And I, I think I would have been fine in a practice, except for it gets a little scary when you see people become disabled or you see people get sick or whatever and the income dries up because there's, there's not a business, it's just a practice. And when you stop practicing, you know, you, you, it does not make perfect when you stop practicing. <laughs> yes, that is true. It does yeah. not make perfect. Yeah. Scott, you, you, you're saying, yeah, uh, number one, content rich, but for people who are listening on VOE and, and you know, if you want to go to the YouTube channel and, and, and see the complete conversation, you can with Scott, which by the way, you probably want to do, um, but very content rich because what you're telling me is, is it is a, it is, everything is really a business choice. And, and I think there's a real distinction between what you said earlier, that there's a difference between a person who is 
uh, a professional speaker who just loves the platform, but that's the experience versus saying, here's this content and, and you're excellent on the platform. You're, you're the Thank brand you. ambassador. Thank you. But you know that you have a business model that is going to uh, bring in additional sources of revenue and in addition to that is going to keep you top of mind awareness for that organization for either them for future work or for the referral business that I know happens to come yeah because you're so great at what you do well thank you um, the the, well, the and, and the focus is this every year we sit around and uh, Marty and I do and we we have our own little retreat <laughs> Try to act like a corporation. And uh, we, <laughs> we have our own little retreat. And in our retreat, what we talk about is where are we going to spend money on my performance and where are we going to spend money on the business? How are we going to allocate capital, allocate capital um, every year? We, we treat it like a real business. And you know, where, where are we going to spend money on the business? Where are we going to spend money on my performance? You know, getting coached, looking at, at uh, you know, manipulating the program some way, maybe uh, hiring somebody to help with curriculum design if I'm developing a program. So that goes over there, and then the business piece. You know, what are we going to do to to look forward? Are we going to invest in an app? Are we going to make something that's sticky on our website? So we are very deliberate about it, and the 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 result is that we make those choices, we spend the money, we reinvest every single year, and it just comes back in spades because our clients like the stickiness. One client said to us that they, because we work in really large corporations, and uh, they said, God, you are, you are like this small boutique with an enormous footprint, and that's exactly what we are. We're, we have a big footprint, in, uh, and we're just a small itty bitty little company. <laughs> okay, so I want to, Scott, I want to ask you a, a question as we start to wrap up. Uh, top of mind and my, my awareness, so it's putting you on the spot, but you know, you've talked about the development of apps, you've talked about, you have an assessment, you didn't develop it, but you're the largest distributor of it. If, if someone listening on VOE says, yeah, man, I really like what Scott's had to say, how do I find an assessment or who do I go to to develop an app? Do you have resources that you say, you know what, look, there's a bunch of people out there, but I'd consider X. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that exist? Yeah, for sure. We're actually building our own assessment through Josh Packard, who is um, who's with the University of North California, Northern Colorado, and he has a sociology lab, and he does uh, validated assessments. So it's really important for us. It okay. has, has to have science behind it. Right. So the validation piece, so um, I look up Josh Packard, okay. and um, he has the sociology lab, University of Northern Colorado. I don't want you to look him up too much, because if he gets too busy, he won't be able to do mine. And then, <laughs> and then, and then uh, the app that we work with, uh, you can always email, she's going to kill me, but Tammy, T-A-M-I, at completeintelligence.com and say, who's the, what's the platform you use for your app? I don't know those things. I wish I did. Not I'm not one of those speakers who, who can just like go, here's all the things we have, because they don't let me talk about them or, or touch them in real life. They just go, go do your thing. <laughs> all right, so you're kind to, 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 to be here for the interview. So here's a commitment I'm going to make to you. Mm. Before this airs, 
I will let you know the month in which it airs so you can inform Tammy that she probably will get lots of calls. Thank you. I'll just call her first. <laughs> and then we'll see if we can make that happen and, and, and not overwhelm her. How's that? I appreciate that. Scott, thank you so much and the commitment that you make to NSA and your willingness to, to be open to helping people. Um, that's what you would expect from a Hall of Fame speaker and that's what we see from you and, and the work that you do is incredible. Thank you. It was great being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What do you need to do to draw attention to yourself and your thought leadership? Some would argue that, well, thought leadership is natural and that if you have to ask the question, you're not a thought leader. Perhaps our next guest, Sarah Michael, can shed some light on the subject since she comes from the meeting planner world and has some valuable insight for us as professional speakers. Now here's Sarah. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with VOE. I could uh, identify my uh, age if I sang the song to you that your name inspires. I love that song. You do. I huh? do love that you song. You know, we need to find out if we have the license to be able to play that because my guest is Sarah Michael with Velvet Chainsaw. And I know you said the number one question you get is, where did Velvet Chainsaw come from? So gee, I have to go ahead and ask <laughs> the proverbial question. It is the number one question and it has nothing to do with me. But the owner of Velvet Chainsaw, David Lutz, it was, he was uh, at one time the president of Experian, the largest conference management company. And he uh, negotiated for, on behalf of a client to get out of an attrition contract, which attrition means when you say you're going to book so many hotel rooms and then you don't use them, the hotel comes back and slams you with a big contract. He somehow went in and negotiated to get the client out of the contract somehow the hotel was happy the client was happy and the client said my god you're the velvet chainsaw and he said one day if i ever have my own firm i'm going to name it that wow. and fast forward 15 years later he he did yes. so it's the question we get asked the most and it has to do with dave lutz fantastic <laughs> so to our voe listeners sometimes you never know you where never your know. name may come you from you never know okay so you help um, organizations construct meetings or have more effective meetings. Is that a fair way of saying it? Or can you make it <laughs> help our audience understand yeah. better what I just um, butchered? I, it wasn't bad at all. I would say we are in the conference improvement business. Okay. So we get hired by mostly national associations. We do some corporate work where they want to elevate the quality of their meeting, they're having a problem with attendee acquisition, they're losing sponsors, there's a problem, and they come to us and say, help us fix it. You have a uh, speaker matching component, yeah. something where as you're working with that association, you say, okay, here's your, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, here's your theme, here's what you're looking for, and we can perhaps help you match the appropriate people to help deliver that content. Is that a fair way of saying uh, it, it? That, that is a fair way of saying it, except for we only do it for current or past clients. So you can't call us up and say, 
hi, we're, uh, we're looking for speakers this year. Can you please recommend some? Because our, um, what really differentiates us from a speaker bureau is that, first of all, we're, if we go into that relationship, it's, it's a retained contract between us and the client. So there's no commission from the speaker. We're not incentivized to promote one speaker over the other. And we, we really believe that um, if we go with our current and past clients that we've already done a lot of consulting on. So we get you. We know your audience pain points. We know exactly the strategy of your meeting because we've consulted with you on where you need to be going and what, how, who your target member is. We know who the target attendee is. So based on all that research we've done, we're able to say, these are the thought leaders that are really going to elevate your message. And we help match you with those thought leaders. And then you, the, you're, the speaker contracts directly with, with our client. Okay. But we make that happen. So what's the thing that you look for in speakers that's going to capture the attention of Velvet Chainsaw? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I definitely, what we're, what would captivate us is um, that you are, are really doing um, some thought leadership in your area of expertise, and you're really um, <clears throat> doing that through whether it's a book author, authorship or you've got an active blog. You're, you're putting content out there that is um, really showing the way in that expertise. You're really pushing ideas that are out there. And <clears throat> it's not necessarily has to be a published book, but we're looking for what kind of content evidence are you putting out there to the world that's showing that you've got these ideas that are provocative. And then the second thing we're looking for is, are you uh, an engaging speaker? We do not, we rarely recommend people who are just talking heads in front of a room. So we're looking for speakers who can, can show that thought leadership and then can inspire that kind of dialogue and conversation. And, you know, Michael Dominguez the other day, I'm sure you've, um, and this has been a callback for you guys, is that context is king. And we totally believe that. So are you willing to customize your message? Are you willing, so if we go to you and say, we're going to put you forward, we're going to say, part of what our contract is with the client is that we're going to help you, Chuck, to understand our audience so well that we expect you to customize it to them and show up and make that relevancy, make that context. Um, so we don't want your canned speech. If you're a canned speech speaker, we wouldn't be recommending you. Sure. We want you to be able to make that relevancy and then, um, and then really be willing to, and it's not necessarily that you've got to be a great facilitative speaker, because um, we, might, we might recommend you and say, we know that you can't really facilitate really well, but, we're, but you're going to help us come up with the questions that then we'll bring in a facilitator to guide that, the so what, now what that comes from you. And we want you to be able to guide that. What would be the questions that you want the audience to be thinking about and after they've heard you? So, um, and then, you know, we need, we're looking for engagement, we're looking for, and that doesn't necessarily have to be interaction, but in the way you tell a story, and the way that you're captivating. Um, sometimes we, you know, we really believe in that emotional um, highs and lows of a conference, so we're looking for speakers often at that end that are, are just so captivating with their story or motivating and inspiring. <clears throat> we talk about bookending a lot with our clients. So right. open with a really good thought leader that really sets the tone for the conference. But that last slot, that closing slot, often really needs to go to 
someone who's inspiring, someone who's uplifting, the motivational humorist, somebody who really leaves people on a high as they walk out of that conference. So we're also recommending people like that. That's We think that's really important to um, send people out on that high. And those, those slots um, often we recommend to people that you know, are not necessarily the content thought leader people, but they're really serving a purpose in that inspiration right. and that emotional high. Now you've given us a lot of information, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, provocative, thought leader, so what, now what, facilitation, and, um, and looking at the overall conference and determining what do you need at certain places. Cause, cause yeah. I, now, again, what, what I heard was is I might want the, that, that thought leader that really inspires the concept of what the organization is going to be. I may need someone after lunch that's going to wake people up and mm-hmm. reignite them. I want mm-hmm. someone at the end that's going to send them out on a high and make them have that feel-good moment when they leave. Yeah. One question, last question for VOE. Uh, someone comes up to you in the hall. They, they see you. They saw you speak. They saw the panel. They, 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 they come to you and they say, okay, um, I may not be new to speaking, but I'm new to NSA. What do I need to know to move my career forward? What would be that one piece of advice that you would give them? Wow. Um, to move my career forward. Um, I would I would say uh, you know really understand um, your domain expertise and start to figure out what can you be what about that domain can you be putting out to the world that that maybe is provocative which is pushing the envelope how get get really and, and you don't have to go write a book but you sure you sure better start writing about that and I think the process of writing about your domain. And whether you do a book or not is going to make you a better speaker and is going to force you to figure out what is your differentiation on this topic? What is your voice in the world about it? What is your message about it? And I think that's key. And then, um, and then you know, getting good on the platform is important. But, you know, there's a lot of people that, uh, that we see that are super effective who aren't very experienced because they're just so authentic and they have such a unique... Um, spin on this problem or challenge, and and it those people and that and Ted has brought that a lot to light, and you know certainly we we were just um, talking about that, on how Ted doesn't even like to use a lot of professional speakers. Oh right, they, absolutely. Because they want that authenticity. So um, I think it's that I would say get get good on your domain, um, figure out what your unique point of view is, and 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 be real. And 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 just in delivering that message and getting in front of people and and figuring out how do I add to this conversation, get more comfortable, I think, with being facilitative, more comfortable with um, having more interaction and dialogue. So go get some training on facilitation and interaction and what can you be doing to do that? I, I think those would be some of the things I would say. Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time here on VOE with Velvet Chainsaw, the speaker matching portion of it, and and especially the insight, because I think this has been incredibly valuable. So speakers understand, you know, the mind of the person who's actually hiring us and how we need to be positioning ourselves to be hired. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Pleasure. often do you think about death? What? 
did I just really ask you how often you think about death? Yep, I sure did. This next What's Happening segment features a very unusual app designed to help you focus on what's really important in your life. This app may or may not be your cup of tea, but I encourage you to find a strategy to refocus on what matters. Special thanks to Carl Sakis for reminding us that eventually, well, we all, we croak. Hey everybody, it's time for What's Happening. And for this segment, I am joined by Carl Sakis. Hi, Meredith. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Carl Sakis and Company, right, is your mm -hmm. official company name. And tell us about your company. If you have seen the show Mad Men, I would be like Don Draper's business consultant. Ooh. And that's what I speak on, helping marketing agencies that have hit growing pains work through those growing pains to make life easier for the owner and make things better for all of the employees. So it, tell us about your app. Well, it's easy to get caught into the day-to-day, -day, you know, things that, that are right in front of you that's urgent but may not be important. And there are all kinds of goal-setting things you can do, and I have a whole process that I work through with clients. But in the moment, you need that reminder about focusing on what's most important. The app that I'm going to recommend that I use myself is called We Croak. Like no. a frog? Uh, croak, it could be like a frog, but more like passing away. Oh, okay. So, so th this is an app that's been reviewed in the New York Times, The Atlantic, other publications. Very cool. And the idea is you get a reminder. It's based on a concept from Bhutan, uh, the, the country, where the idea of contemplating death five times a day brings you happiness. <laughs> okay, So Tell the way me the, more. the app works, it's about a dollar. Uh, you've got the app five times a day, randomly, you get a reminder, you get a quote uh, about, about appreciating, appreciating life, about, you know, perhaps what might happen when, when you die. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, getting those reminders throughout the day helps me focus. I could be worried about something that's coming up. I could be worried about something I'm in the middle of. It gives me some perspective that, you know, we're alive. We're enjoying things, yes, uh, and it, it really puts things into perspective. So the app is called We Croak, W-E-C-R-O-A-K. Uh, it's available on the App Store for about a dollar. That's really cool. I do as much as I know. You know the quote: uh, "It's all small stuff," or "Don't mm -hmm. sweat the small stuff." I mean, we just get caught up where we're spiraling, basically. Yes over getting a proposal out or whatever. You've got an unhappy client, you've yes. got an employee who's having some issues. It's easy to get stressed out. Yeah. Especially if, if you're running your own business, all the weight is on you. And yes. you, know, you might have a business partner, but you know, they're in the same boat. Yeah, I resemble oh. that remark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this idea is, it, mm -hmm. even though it sounds a little like a downer. A little macabre. I a mean, little yeah, macabre. yeah. Let's be when, honest. When I first read this, it was like, really? What? But but it, it works. And, and it's a dollar. If you don't like it, just delete it and, <laughs> and move on. And move on. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think we hear the advice, and it's good advice, you know, mm -hmm. will this matter in one day? Right. Will it matter in one week, one month, yes. one year, 10 years, yes. right? But cultivating habits mm -hmm. that actually put these cliches into action is a whole nother thing. Exactly. Yeah. A, a lot of things in life, you know, are, are simple, but not easy. Ah, and this can be one of those. And yeah. having We Croak reminding you five times a day at random times, 
helps give you that extra nudge. Right, if you need a reminder to stay focused on what's important, mm -hmm. put some perspective, will this matter one day, one month, one week, one year, 10 years? And no. sounds like we croak is the app for you. Thank you, Carl, so much. It's Carl Sakis with sakisandcompany.com. Yes. And we appreciate you giving your time and talent to VOE. Thanks, Meredith. My pleasure. You're at a conference, scheduled to be the end keynote speaker, and the person speaking before you is an industry expert. You observe that the audience is falling asleep with a mind overload by being dragged through the weeds of detail. Well, my next guest, Diane DeResta, helps eliminate that and has incredible advice for us as speaking professionals. And now, here's Diane. You and I both have been in plenty of meetings. Okay, to me, it's the it's the association meeting you go to where you're hired as the keynote speaker, but you're listening to other industry experts mm -hmm. who are presenting, and it's like boring down into the weeds oh. of oh. just shoot meville. Yes. <laughs> I mean. It, I was interviewed in December at the end of 2017 by the Wall Street Journal on an article about talkaholics and how it's a career killer. And the reason that article came up is I was speaking to the journalist and I said, you know, the last three executives I've worked with had the same issue. They can't get to the point. They don't come to a stop. They're in the weeds and it's affecting them. And so that's how that that came about, but it's a very pervasive issue in a lot of industries, not just tech. So when you, when you think about this, now the majority of people that are hiring you, they're hiring you to help their execs, I'm going to say get out of the weeds mm -hmm. and get to a place where it's, where it's understandable. Right. Now let's take that now to our industry, mm -hmm. however, okay, so as speakers, there probably is a pretty clear message here for us as well. So if, if you were speaking to a group of speakers, let's say that NSA says, Diane, we want to bring you in and we want you to tell us what we need to know to be more effective. What's some of the advice that you'd be giving us? All right, well, it's been an eye-opener for me because you assume professional speakers have it all together and we don't. I'd say the number one thing is to suspend your ego and speak from the listener's point of view. I think a lot of times speakers, professional speakers, get so enamored with their own message that they forget it's not about them, it's about the audience. So I would say, number one, get over yourself. It's not about you, it's about them, the audience. The other thing I've seen is, I've seen people get into the weeds as well, not adequately setting up or positioning the message. So I was in a session and I'm, wait, I'm waiting for them to get to the point. Okay, where are we going with this? Why am I here? What is the gist of this presentation? So it's setting up the expectations, setting it up for success, being really clear about the direction. When when, when we begin the process of speaking, you said the first thing is, is approach it from your audience's perspective. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to talk with uh, someone not long ago, well-educated, and, and I'm sitting there listening to the, 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 the presentation that's taking place, and it's like there was a certain level of conversation that was happening, and, and, and it was fine mm -hmm. if you were in graduate school. Right, right. And, and one of the comments was, well, yeah, but is the audience typically going to be, you know, 
graduate school kind of folks. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not even sure the exact way to ask this question, but what level of conversation should we be having? You know, what's our language that we should be using that's going to reach the audience? It goes back again to know your audience. And so when I work with people, I share my YAM formula. Know yourself, know your audience, and know your message, Y-A-M. And okay. it's very simple, and that's everything you need to know about presentation. So we spend a lot more time delving in and doing a listener analysis. And to answer your question, you've got to make it simple. And one of the things I'm really effective at is simplifying complexity. So I will start and I'll work with someone, and if they have a PowerPoint, I'll say, tell me the message of this slide in one sentence. And if they can't do that on every slide, it's not clear. So I show people how to call the message down to a simple idea and help them to speak in sound bites. Okay, so give us some tips. If you say, I'm teaching people how to speak in sound bites, give us an idea of how that would take place. What are the tips we need to know or our listeners need to know about creating an effective soundbite? Well, if you can't say something in 30 seconds or less, it's probably too complex. You need to break things down into smaller units. And one very practical tip is you can write your message as a tweet. And if you can put it into 140 characters, we know that's a, a clear message, a clear principle. So what are the key ideas or key takeaways that you want people to have at the end of your presentation? So start writing them in tweet form, and that's a type of soundbite. Interesting. So I've, I've seen um, two debates, I guess. Okay, now I'm going to go to three. Okay, three <laughs> debates. Debate number one, have no PowerPoint because it's all about the message. Yes. Okay. Debate number two, well, if you have a PowerPoint, make sure that it's graphics heavy, words light. Mm -hmm. And then I've been in organizations where it's like, but we need to know exactly what the legal requirements are for the whatever, ethics requirements for the legal association and they need to be enumerated and they have to be put on a screen because it has to pass right. some organizational guru that says yes, this qualifies for continuing education. So it, it seems like at some level mm -hmm. there are people that believe that more gives that data but then they get caught up in the weeds right, so of PowerPoint. you know what my answer to that is? I'd love all to right. know. First of all, it goes back again to know your audience. So when I work with clients, I meet them where they are. So I could say, be Steve Jobs and have a picture and no words, but that doesn't work for their industry if they're in legal or technical. So what we do is we work with what they have. So here's my best advice to them. Have a deck, a handout, a print form, of everything, all the words, all the sentences. But when you project that as a PowerPoint, take all of that out, have key graphs, photos, and key words or bullets. Because if you have every word written down, I guarantee you are obsolete. They are always going to choose reading in favor of listening. So as the presenter, tell them you have a detailed handout that they will get when they leave, but don't give it to them at the moment have a PowerPoint that is streamlined so that they have to depend on you to fill in the blanks because you're the storyteller. You're the subject matter expert. Thank you for taking the time to be here on VOE. <laughs> Diane DeResta, thank, thank you. Thank you, Chuck. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Hey, boring meetings suck. And my next guest is known for anything but 
boring meetings. John Petz was one of the folks that multiple people told me to get as a VOE guest, and I know why. The spirit of Cabot is strong with this one. You'll learn why John was in such demand for VOE and gain valuable insight into how to grow your business. Now, here's John. So on VOE, sometimes the most interesting guests are those that are referred because of their unique skills. John Petz, you are one of those people because I asked the question of NSA members, who would you like to hear on VOE? And some of your peers said, you got to get John because of his unique perspective on building a business, growing a business, and this whole system of referrals. So talk to me a little bit and educate me on what somebody knows is the secret sauce. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think this is part of the power of NSA and really understanding you know, other members that are here and what they talk about. And, and referrals is a major piece of my business. And I, when I say incoming, but also I refer way more out than I get in, whether because I can't do a date or, you know, it's, it's a perfect opportunity when the event is finishing up and they're gushing over you and you're with that planner and it's, tell me when you start hiring your speakers next year. Now that I understand your, your, your audience, your event, I have got the perfect person for you. You know, that's what they want to hear. When we want to talk about adding value to our clients and staying in relationship with them, how cool would it be if we helped them find their next speaker? And that, uh, that's okay. L- let me say, mm-hmm. I fully believe in what you're saying. I also find it fascinating because rarely do I hear someone engaging the meeting planner saying, and when do you start planning for next year if they're not thinking about themselves? <laughs> I, you know, it's part of the bigger pie. I, I love getting friends work and when I say friend, speakers who I know are very good quality because in the end, I'm putting it out there and yes, some come back. I give away a lot more than comes back. Sure. But it could be the relationship where I, some of my good friends are my competitors and they're very good at that same opening, closing keynote spot that I would have. Sure. And I put, suggest one of them. And you know what? Next time they would suggest party number three. And then party number three, you know what happens? Oh my gosh, have you seen John Pitts's new stuff? It's time to get him back. And it, it can be that circular system, in a sense, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity. So how did you, uh, okay, is that, that an, sense? it, it yeah. makes perfect sense. Is it an innate thing that you just naturally did because that's just kind of your DNA, or did you learn that process and then apply it? Uh, I would, I'd like to say both. I probably learned, I mean, referrals from people here at the, at the association and also it was always a plan and this goes back to something mark sanborn taught me years ago this is at least what i heard he's like you know do 50 events if you're doing at least 50 events and you've got a good product then the inbound comes you don't have to do so much outbound so how do you keep how do you build the momentum events you know get more business and go back to that event two years later and just build the pipeline you know two or three years out so at that point i i like I like to stay in touch with my clients. What are the reasons to stay in touch? And I want, I want them to have a great speaker, as good or better or way better than I am because I think that helps all of us. If the worst case scenario is if they get, at, they, you know, get a diva, a div dude, someone who started the website and they get a speaker that's awful. What happens? We all lose from that, right? And their boss says, you know what? We're not doing that again. No budget, 
and that cycle's gone. So it's protecting my business if I get them a spectacular speaker next year. Someone that I know that I've trusted, I've seen that I've seen personally, not a promo, I know that the quality of their work is there. So it's self-preservation that I learned probably from being here. Okay, so you said what you heard Mark Sanborn said or say was speak 50 times. Mm -hmm. So if you're a young speaker in, in SA and they're listening to this or perhaps they're seeing the longer video on, on the YouTube channel, um, John, somebody's going to say to you, how do I get to 50 it's events? True. You know, you get hired from being seen in most cases. You know, not, not all the time, but your best marketing weapon is being on stage. Even, remember Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller? They yeah, were, sure. He was at Influence three years ago or something. Yeah, I believe. It was all about stage time, stage time, stage time. Just do the work. And I think when you're starting out, finding the opportunities, taking money off the table or, and talking into that discussion, just find the opportunities where you can do your best stuff in front of a crowd and you build, you build your market from there. Uh, I mean, it, it's definitely easier said than done. Hey, don't worry, you don't need to market, just go speak 50 times. And sure. we, you do a lot more than that, you can pick where you wanna go at that point, but what was the question? <laughs> so, you know, I, I like that. What yeah. was the question? You know, when was you I go, going with that, Yeah, it's okay. When you go oh. back to that, when you say, just speak, uh, it, it reminds me of uh, a time, I'm living in Greenville, South Carolina, okay. where I spoke to a, a rotary group. And th that's a freebie. You know, Absolutely. Great, freebie. But, you know, it put me in front of a group. The fascinating thing that struck me was, is I ended up getting hired in Gig Harbor, uh, Washington, for a rotary group at full fee. And I was like, I didn't know they even paid. <laughs> but for that particular yeah. event, they did. And so what started as time in front of an audience turned out to be time in front of an audience that paid. So I think what Mark said and the attitude you've got goes a long way. If, if a person brings you in and you're an opening or a closing keynote and they've seen what you do, uh, what's the normal cycle for them to think about bringing you back? Is it two years, three years, four years, or have you found that there is a norm? That is a great question, and no, no problem answering it. Depends on the event. Uh, as I also do some MC work, it's probably 20% of my business. There's relationships there that I've done 10 years in a row. It's I'm just part of the creative producing team at this point. If it's a industry national association meeting, you know, even when you're spectacular, they don't want you next year because they sure. got to sell the new tickets to the, to the people that have already been there. Three to four years, uh, depending. I mean, some of these, they've got cyclical things. There are some, the new chairs are in and out, and, but uh, most cases it's not two years, it's three years to be pushing it. Okay. Uh, three to four. And when you are asked back, are you always creating new materials or new angles on materials? Or does it, I'm not trying to be funny with this, no, with this no. question, or is it Elton John coming back singing Daniel <laughs> and Rocket Man again? I had this discussion last night. No way. No, I did, because you know, a comedy magician is part of what I do. It's part of my skill set. Sure. And there's a bit that I, that I do, and people are like, oh, you've got to do that thing with the lemons again. I'm like, we've done it four times, but they want to hear the song again. So is it new? There's definitely new transitions. There could be the same story. There's, there's, it is a combination of all of the above, yeah. Okay. How did you discover your model? Because you made a comment. You said, you know, I track a lot of things. And I know I talked to a fair number of speakers who don't have a tracking system, don't like that whole analytic side. So how did you discover your model and how that business is going to work? 
discovered the model because I do what I like to do. I mean, when you look at the model of from the webinars to training and programs to books and products, I, mean, I am I'm a 98% speaker revenue model. And it, it's what I want to do. It's what I love. Uh, and in terms of tracking that is uh, tracking, you know, your, you know, knowing your margin per day, I've got a set number of days on stage. That inventory of what I can sell and what I'm willing to sell it at and put it out there and what I'm willing to take a different fee based on something, knowing that model based on my financial and personal and family goals uh, is very important to me. Does that now, make sense? Yeah, is that it, it, okay. it does. And let me kind of peel a little of that yeah. onion back. I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, but what I just heard you say, which I think is fascinating, is uh, the day is my inventory. There is a certain revenue amount that, as a person for your family, you want to make. You have a fee. You don't always get that fee. You will determine what you're, what you're willing to take or not willing to take based upon how many of those days are sold, what fees you have, and therefore what you need to do to complete your business. Is that correct? You said that very well. In my case, I, mean, I, do, I do 70 dates, whether that's MC is two, a keynote is one, and I mean, I, I do plenty in the kind of the charitable world as well. But if I'm giving away $0 days, I either need to go to my family to say, hey, I'd like to do this one. And it's a thumb up, thumb down. But I mean, that's part of the consideration and part of the tracking that I think people need to understand the numbers behind their business. That's fascinating. I think one thing that particularly has been helpful, actually two that just jump at me from this interview, and I really appreciate it, is the fact that number one, you're willing to say, look, I refer other speakers and there's a way that this makes sense. And secondarily, that you actually track it and look at the business side of it, that yes, you do a great job at what you do. And people recognize that, but the flip side is, Here's my inventory, this is what I'm capable of doing, and I have to determine how I make the revenue portion work from there. True, you said that very well. John, thank you so much, that was awesome. Have you ever wondered, how is it that I can deliver what I feel so inspired to share when the client seems to be so focused on a technical issue or perceived need. Steven Iverson shares how he made the transformation to sharing something deeper from the platform and finding an open audience to do so with. Also, Steven talks about fees, and this is a conversation you'll want to hear. Steven Iverson, I appreciate you being my guest on VOE. And, you know, I have to say, as I recall, it was probably um, when I was maybe president-elect or so and had the opportunity to come to chapter leadership, and you were taking a very active role in chapter leadership that I really got exposed to uh, you and your leadership style and your kind and gentle way of moving people. Yes. And uh, (laughs) so it's really been, it's been fun for me to watch your career and and to know that I've had the opportunity to be mentored by you. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you saw it as moving and not forcing. No, no, it was oh, very okay. nice. <laughs> it was actually kind and gentle. Well, yeah. good. Very good. That was the intent. In the early days of speaking, when you're beginning to market yourself, what did you, what did you find the clients wanted, and how did that play with the message you wanted to deliver? I discovered by conversation at an NSA convention, someone said to me, you know, maybe you just need to begin to understand that 
you can help them with what they perceive as their want. And then from there, begin to introduce what they really need. And that was very freeing for me because I had wrestled back and forth with how do I make the marketing material enticing enough that they'll go with what I want to talk about to start with, when in reality, they just weren't seeing it yet. So tell me about that transformation. When, when they hired you and they wanted productivity or KPIs or whatever the uh, terminology was at the time, how did you go from that to maneuvering to the message that you felt had a deeper meaning? I learned to tell stories. Ah, Coming from a ministry background, uh, it, it's about telling a story. It's oh, about, absolutely. You know, what is perceived as possibly the greatest story ever told. And so I learned to be a good storyteller. And in those sessions where I was working with clients, I would begin to introduce stories that planted the seeds of other things that I could do. And I would always weave it into their challenges, but beginning to help them see it's not just maybe with one or two individuals, but with an, an, an entire corporate change or a culture shift, I would plant those stories. And it was oftentimes the stories that they would remember. Techniques and practice, they love those, but they would come back and say, hey, you know, when you told that story about, we could relate to that. And that would then open up the opportunity for some conversation about, well, what other things might that work for? And we begin the conversation about a new package or a new presentation that would really help them in the long run. So you leveraged um, one avenue into other opportunities within the organization. Right. Yeah, that was the intent. Now, there was something you said uh, in an earlier conversation about um, a, a mindset related to fees in the early days. Oh, yes. So it help, help me understand that. And I know in NSA we can't talk about official dollars. No. But, but what's the, what was the concept that really stuck with you? Well, you know, we all want to have, we all want to have the high fees. Of course. You know, let me give you the range, and this is the top end of my range. Uh, but pretty much uh, everybody's wanting to have you for the lowest part of the fee or a few thousand dollars lower than your lowest fee. Sure. And I had to come to terms with an, with an understanding for me that not only did I want business, but I wanted to make sure that I was finding a way to, to serve the client who in many ways had a tough budget to work with, but to begin to understand that even though they may have a lower fee, there were some other things that we could discuss that maybe they could put on the table. But the big aha for me was learning that sometimes when I could get to a client, there were other prospects in their community that I would love to see face to face. Or there were other opportunities to, uh, to maybe uh, spin off to another, another department or uh, a chamber of commerce, uh, some connection, a newspaper that has uh, an, an author that writes on my subject that while I'm in town, I want, to, I want to see those people. So I stopped looking at just the fee that maybe they could pay me, and I started looking at the opportunities that were around that particular organization, and that began to then spill over to actually better fees in the long run. So today, with the years of experience and the active role that you played with NSA, mm -hmm. what would you tell the, the 
speaker who is new to NSA, not necessarily new to speaking, but new to NSA. They've got the VIP badge on. You see them at Influence, yes. and they come up to you and they say, oh, my gosh, Stephen, I was told I need to talk with you. What kind of advice would you give them? I would tell them to really focus in on your message, but listen to what your audience is telling you that they're gaining from the message. For me, I thought I had my message pretty locked down. And then I began to understand that there were certain elements of that message that stood out to the audience. Um, I learned that when the audience heads drop and I can't see their faces, I must have just said something brilliant. And they're writing it down. And then people would come up later and say, you know, when you told this story or you, you mentioned this piece, that resonated with me and I would get that feedback. And I didn't pay attention to that early enough. And when I started to put those connections together, then I realized the message that's really starting to work for my, my, my own business and for my audience is this. And so they helped me shape that message. So focus on your message, but start listening and watching your audience because they're going to tell you what really makes the connection for them. Stephen, one last question. I've asked a lot of people this question, and that is, so we have experienced Stephen today. Yes. Uh, who can look back at younger Stephen when he first got started in the professional speaking business. What advice would you tell younger Stephen not to do? I would say don't avoid the cold connections. Don't avoid the conversations with industries that you're not familiar with, the, the individuals that you're afraid of talking to because they have a title that might be bigger than you. Uh, just get past some of that and start doing that, that connecting earlier and build the network. Um, that's not what I did in the beginning. I leaned too much on current relationship and referrals, but I needed to make sure that I was branching out beyond that. Stephen, thank you so much, and I want to say thank you for the leadership that you are providing still and have provided through NSA. Uh, when people see you in the hallways, they're always talking to you, and that's because you've made yourself available, and you're such a consummate professional. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. My next VOE guest says, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. I heard him speak at an NSA conference and I was mesmerized. If you want to be undefeatable and unstoppable, then you'll be thrilled with my next VOE interview with W. Mitchell. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with Voices of Experience and my guest, man, I am honored to have W. Mitchell. I remember my first NSA conference and you spoke and it was mesmerizing. I was like, wow, if I could be that good and that concise and that clear with a message. I like this guy. <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah, you can give me 20 later. Um, but you've been in NSA for a long time. How many years? I just got a pin that says 30 years on it. 30 years. So today, if there are people that are coming into NSA and they came up to you and they said, Mitchell, what do I need to know to propel myself forward in the speaking business, what advice would you give them? Well, there's the University of the National Speakers Association, and its campus moves around, and every summer it goes to a big campus, 
And then in the winter, there are labs and winter workshops and uh, opportunities to go and be with the very best of the best in this business. And I learned a lot. I was, I was fortunate. I became a broadcaster, a disc jockey and stuff, as a young guy just out of the Marines. And I played disc jockey as a kid, my sisters tell me. And I was mesmerized by people like Paul Harvey and, and uh, Arthur Godfrey and people like that on the radio. So I had that kind of interest. And then I wound up uh, in politics and I became a mayor and I ran for Congress. And so there is hundreds of speeches and we had a big environmental battle with the town that I was the mayor of, uh, had a big battle with a big mining company. So I traveled lots and lots and lots and talked to audiences. And sometimes the audiences weren't very happy with me. Oh, I can and imagine. Sometimes, sometimes they liked me, especially in politics. And that's the best thing you could ever have happen to you. A, a guy one day stood up at a meeting when I was running for Congress and said, Mr. Mitchell, I understand you're against everything. And the audience started laughing a little bit and I smiled and I said, well, sir, everything? I said, let's talk about a few things that I'll bet you and I agree on. And so, so just that audience interaction, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's wonderful, sometimes they think you're great, sometimes they don't think you're great. Uh, and then I was very fortunate and joined the National Speakers Association. And a guy named Nick Carter spoke at the first chapter meeting I ever attended in Denver. And then we'd have the meeting every month and a guest speaker would come in. And an Al Walker would show up. And I would say, how could I get that good? And then a Tom Winninger would show up. And then a Sheila Murray Bethel would show up. And then these people who were just giving everything they know. Joe Charbonneau. I mean, just spewing it, giving it, opening up their trunk and saying, here, take whatever you want. I'm going to show you some things. And then adapting, using what they did and learning from them. Because there's, there's never been a more giving group of people that I've ever been around and as speakers we talked to lots and lots of associations and conventions and and uh, never been a more giving group than the National Speakers Association and anybody wherever you are whatever convention they may not have a lot of time at the convention but if you get their name get their info thank them for what they've done and ask them whether if you called them or emailed them would they give you 15 minutes and of course as speakers you ask for 15 minutes I'll give you an hour because I love to tell you how wonderful I am and all things. But I've learned a lot from a lot of giving people, and some of it's really good stuff. And why not share it with people behind me on the trail? Mitchell, you have a compelling story. No one would doubt that. But today, in your business, now progressed 30 years, what are you doing to market yourself and to stay relevant in the marketplace that seems to be changing a bit. I had a very interesting experience uh, about a year and a half ago. I had been invited to speak for Massage Envy, and I didn't know what Massage Envy was, but this buddy of mine with whom I had worked and some of his colleagues, they all came out of a big grocery store company in Canada, Loblaws, and they had called me from time to time to come back to their new business. They had moved on to other companies and other businesses. And so this one guy called me uh, from Massage Envy and said, would you come speak to the audience in April? And I said, sure. And I came, and there was about 2,000 people in Las Vegas, and it was a great talk, and 
it went well and they got books and stuff and so profitable, wonderful. That summer, we were in Phoenix for the uh, NSA convention and I called them, their offices are in Phoenix, I said, come on over, let's have lunch. And he did and we were sitting there and he said, what are you doing next April? And I said, well, I'm sure I have openings and stuff, but you don't want me. I already told the story to the 2,000 people. They know my story. He said, no, 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 no. You're going to have a new story. I said, a new story? Well, my message, which a lot of people who know me know, is it's not what happens to you. It's what you do about it. He said, next April in Orlando, you're going to ask them what they've done about it. Interesting. They took your message last year. We gave them initiatives and things that we wanted them to do during the course of the year. And now you're going to talk a little bit about those eight objectives and ask them what they're doing about it. Duh. I didn't have to be very smart to have that one all figured out. Absolutely. And so now I have another speech, another message, and, and a particularly effective speech for the group that heard me before, that knows me, that knows a little bit about my story. And there'll be new people there, of course, sometimes, that haven't heard what happened to me, so I can tell them. But uh, it gave, gave me this another opportunity. It's one more thing. But the whole thing, and I've gotten it from listening to VO, uh, VOE tapes and, and uh, uh, reading the magazine, go back to people you've worked with before. And not only to offer them what's new, what some things you've learned, some ways you've grown since you last worked with them, but also to uh, find out from them what is in the industry that's worthwhile and useful and who else they know that they could help. But it's not helping me so much as it's helping a colleague, a buddy, somebody running another company. And, and I've got a guy, Mitchell, you should hear him. I've worked with him. In this case, this grocery store company and all the people who've moved on to other businesses has probably been 20, 27, 30 speeches in wow. the last 25 years, just out of one speech in Orlando 25, 27 years ago. You know, it's interesting. I mean, what you just said, <clears throat> excuse me, said was, <laughs> your client's bringing you back and they're telling you the topic, and the topic is the natural extension of what you started with. Isn't it fascinating how clients can help us see something that we might not easily see that's literally sitting in front of us? Speaking all these years, and I'm effective. I've never been better on the platform. I've felt really good. But my message has not dramatically changed because I cannot get up in front of an audience and not tell them what happened. Right. Uh, they, I've not answered that question. And then that's, their minds are on that instead of the messages I have for them that day. So I need to tell them the stories and then what I did about it. Right. And what happened and what I did about it. And... Uh, it's, it's been very rewarding, but the National Speakers Association for me, uh, the friendships, of course, are invaluable, are incredible. And uh, the, the lessons that I've learned, the things that I've known, because I was a very good speaker when I joined NSA. I just wasn't a professional speaker. I wasn't getting paid to speak. It wasn't my business. Right. I was on the radio, I was doing talk shows and things, but I, I didn't have it in my brain. I even made a little effort once, and it didn't go anywhere, calling a bureau and they told me to go away. So, uh, <laughs> and because they had lots of speakers, and we all know that right. bureaus, bureaus don't suffer from lack of speakers; they suffer from lack of clients. And so you have to 
bring them something different, new, better, that a new toy, a new car in the showroom, a new something that they can take out to clients and say, wow, look at this. This is something you may not have seen or not experienced before. Mitchell, thank you for taking the time to be a guest here on VOE. I think you've imparted some things and you may not even realize the depth at which those go. But again, you are always a joy to talk with, mm. uh, to see at conventions, to share wisdom with, to get uh, just to get recharged. So thank you, but also thank you for the uh, the nuggets of wisdom that people who are listening to VOE can walk away with and implement. You can't get away with anything with my next guest, the lie guy, Stan Walters. An incredible trainer, Stan shares tips that will help you find out quickly how to help your clients and grow your business. Also, stay tuned at the end for some insight into some high profile cold cases. Hi, this is Chuck Gallagher with Voices of Experience, and, and so my guest is Stan Walters, the lie guy. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm a little intimidated because as I sit here and know every movement I make, there's a possibility you will analyze it to say, is he telling the truth or is he not? A little more complex than that. Well, look, okay, I know it's a little more complex than that, mm -hmm. but I also know, let's see, what was the TV show, Lie to Me? Oh, Lie to Me, yeah. You were referenced on that show on multiple occasions mm -hmm. yep. so to be to be the background guy that's referenced <laughs> on a show like that is really pretty impressive so don't minimize what you do <laughs> well that's when you want to talk to your agent can I get a walk-on but they canceled the show before I could get it around. Oh, that's so sad. I missed it by that much. You usually miss things by that much. Oh, that is so sad. But I got other stuff so it'll work. As a speaker, mm -hmm. as a trainer, and I, and I broadly categorize speaking, training, we're communicating with voice, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. But as a speaker, how often do we not ask the question of the meeting planner mm -hmm. that might be that one critical factor that either will A, get us hired, mm -hmm. or B, make sure we deliver the experience that they're looking for? I tracked for a long time all the calls that came in. And for my case, I found there was three reasons they called me. Number one, they had not had any training at all in interviewing, or was very poor. Their skills weren't working, or they got into legal trouble. So right off the bat, when they would call, I'll ask them questions, which one of those you have a problem with? Then I'll go and research, um, for example, I have um, U.S. Air Force OSI investigators coming up. And so I'll ask them, okay, now, what do you want your people, and what are they having trouble with? What is their issue and they have something in mind but you have to ask that or they won't tell you the greatest thrill is when you walk out I was teaching US probation and parole they said how long were you a probation and parole officer I said never well you know exactly what we do I said that's my job to research and know what their problems are we fix and solve problems but we have to have that skill set to be transferred them that once we leave they don't forget it tomorrow, but they can solve skills down the road. So that critical interview, what do you need out of my expertise? So my training is flexible enough that I can follow those squirrels <laughs> right. to that problem that's really causing them the issue and how do we fix that problem? And they see it and they can fix it themselves once they leave the training. Okay, so you're, you're 
excellent, obviously, at interviewing people and asking questions. Okay, mm-hmm. we know that. Mm-hmm. Stan the lie guy. Okay, which, by the way, I, I love the fact you've trademarked that. I think that's really cool. <laughs> but you're excellent in asking questions, but you also just gave us a tidbit here for VOE that is, you know the three primary reasons people hire you, so you know when someone calls, if you ask, is it this, this, or this, the probability is they're going to go down one of those rabbit holes, mm-hmm. which means you're going to be more effective in helping them see how you can help them solve their problem. It's like taking a toolbox, and I've got the toolbox, and okay, I have this problem, okay, so here, of all the skills I have, here's the tool, let me help you with this one with this tool. And then in the conversations in the class, there's new things that come up that they'll ask that sometimes the supervisors don't think, know they have problems with. Interesting. And be ready to adjust and adapt to that particular need for that student. Because if he asks, there's five or six more who got the same problem. Now, Stan, there are a lot of people within NSA that would, would tend to think that the National Speakers Association is really all about keynotes. And you said, you know, last keynote you did was three years ago, mm-hmm. that you functionally have a business that's focused on training. So talk to us a little bit about how, what would you say to people whose primary focus is training about building and growing their business? Well, got me interested in NSA. I've been a member since December 2000. And I had done an interview with 2020 um, about the John Benny Ramsey case. And that was my first real full, and I'm thinking, I'm going to screw this up. So with my first training, I survived, and many new speakers and trainers that we survived solely on our raw passion. It's like that five-star athlete in his first year in college. He doesn't have the skills, he just got that passion to play. And I, my cousin gave me a book. Oh, this guy, I don't know if everybody's heard of him. He's got a funny letter, CPAE, some guy named Weiss or something like that. I think his first name's Alan. Gave me the book, Speak and Grow Rich. <laughs> yeah. In the back. Great book. Yep. In the back was organizations, and there was NSA, National Speakers Association. I'll call my local chapter. Talked to um, uh, Conway Stone, who's the president, and said, we won't get you jobs, but we'll show you how to refine your skills on a platform and how to run your business. So when I, when I watch Fripp and Al Walker and, and Mike McKinley and Lou Heckler, yeah, they're keynoters, but there are so many skills that I can transform onto the platform that I'm teaching over 24 hours that somebody does in 90 minutes that still translates. And then how to maintain my contact resource management, uh, about my website, my electronic newsletters, about how I can use, I got a huge YouTube channel, about 145 videos. So everything that's taught is, to me is easily translatable to the trainer by the stories I craft, by the way I approach the audience, my movements on stage, um, by teaching in lesson sets. That's all right here at NSA in any winter conference. I have been to 18 straight uh, conventions. I've missed it one since I've been a member. Now, Stan, um, let's talk quickly about your YouTube channel. Okay. You have a lot of videos on your YouTube channel, and it gets a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. So I know that's by intention, but talk to us a little bit about the intention and what exactly are you doing with that that's driving this? I'd read a book, of Randy Gage's book, um, 101 Ways for Prosperity. I thought, I could do that. And suddenly it Wait, I could do that. I could be prosperous or write, that, or write a book. I, I could do something like, well, how about 101 tips for interviewers and interrogators? Oh, okay. So the 100 numbers, right? So I right. picked up something from a keynoter. Right. So in my mastermind group, it's uh, uh, Lori Guest and uh, um, 
Stephen uh, Iverson, uh, Carol Murray. And I mentioned it and I said, you know, I'm thinking about writing this book. And Lori said, um, you got a YouTube channel, don't you? I had like 10, 15 YouTube. She got a YouTube channel, don't you? Yeah. YouTube it. She reminded me YouTube is a big connection to Google. And I thought, duh. And so the masterminding from somebody else who's, uh, Lori's work is in customer service and everything, this idea, I can translate this into mine. So I sat down two or three nights with that iPad and I would just, as I'm watching TV or watching a show, I'd come up with one. I bought a little green screen sheet. I practiced and learned how to use green screen. And for 110 weeks, every Tuesday, because there were some goof ups, <laughs> 110 weeks, every Tuesday morning, I had 101 tip, five to 10 minutes long. Last I checked, 350 something thousand views, uh, something like 3,000 viewers. But the media finds that and I'll have students say, I found you on YouTube, that's why I wanted to come to your class. I can refer my clients, here's someplace you can see what I do, and I do that every time I respond to a LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And learn that here at NSA, how to leverage set and forget type of, of, of um, marketing right. to create inbound stuff. So it's just one of those channels that draws people into me. Stan. Thank you for being a guest here on BOE. It's it's always a pleasure, absolutely. And uh, uh, just you know, kind of watch us and make sure that we're always on the straight and narrow. But by the way, wait, wait, wait. I, okay, I, I, I got to ask you the quick sure. question. Okay, so Frank Abagnale Jr. Mm -hmm. You know, the catch me if you can. What, was, was there anything that was really interesting or unique? That's one question. And another quick one is yes. John Benet Ramsey. Uh -huh. Who did it? Let's start with the Abagnale. People tend to default to believing everyone. And so Abigail was able to, to convince you to fall in like with him. Okay. That you like him and didn't not perceive him as a threat. Now if that'd been Charles Manson, you got you know, but he he presented himself as a warm, open character, as approachable, but that's the option of psychopaths and sociopaths. And he pulled him in close. And when he got in close, then he was able to take advantage of him. In the the Ramsey case, they happened to have training one month before the homicide. It was an interview and interrogation. My class. Wait a minute. Who had training? The Boulder PD. Really? Yeah. No kidding. One month before. So, so, so it, this may never make VOE, but it's, <laughs> but it's said that the brother did it. Do you have any opinions? Forensically, I can see where that argument can be made. I think there's also forensically, what if my reading of their interviews and doing a diagnosis of them. It is my opinion that they were aware of what happened in the house, the parents, and were involved, I believe, in covering that up for whatever reason. So it's, it's a toss-up, I think, between is it her or him? Hmm. Is, is it her uh, mom or is it her son? But that's where the case, had the interviews and investigation been done correctly in the front end, the tail end might have been totally different from the outcome. Interesting. Wow. See, we could we could go down all kind of rabbit holes. Oh, right holes we could take a long time for that stuff, yeah. <laughs> all right, buddy. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so much. Thank you. So Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to VOE. You know, since we've gone podcast, we have the luxury of giving you more content. And remember, all of these segments can be seen on NSA's YouTube channel since they were video first. We'll continue our conversation with Diana Boer in April, as well as feature Chris West. By the way, don't forget to sign up for NSA's Video Lab. Likewise, other guests include Alan Berg, Ford Sakes, Kay Francis, and so many others. So folks, 
We'll see you in April. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.